Okay, good morning, everyone. I was just giving people time to get back from the restroom, which they still are. Uh, welcome to Harvard Divinity School. For the, I don't know how many times you've heard that already, uh, but it's very nice to see you. So I'm Janet Gyatso. Um, I basically teach Buddhism here. I'm the Hershey Professor of Buddhist Studies, but I'm also the academic dean. So that puts me in charge of the curriculum. And this session is going to be about the programs uh, that issue out of this school. And what we're gonna do is uh, have each of the uh, people on this panel speak to you for about seven minutes or so. And uh, I'm gonna let you ask one or two questions after each person talks so you don't have to wait till the end, but then hopefully if we have time, we'll also be able to re-return to questions and answers after everyone has spoken. Uh, so as I'm sure you have heard already, uh, Harvard Divinity School prides itself on the degree to which we have diversified our curriculum, uh, especially with respect to the religious traditions that we study. It's changed dramatically in the last 20 years. Uh, and uh, we are endeavoring to cover the world's major religions and in addition, we have opened up all kinds of uh, methodological approaches to the study of religion, as in study of religion and literature, religion and politics and other areas. Uh, so our curriculum and the kinds of courses that you get here are very diverse. There also is a lot of interaction uh, between the more properly, let's say, professional side of the school. So some people come to the school as a way of trying to prepare better for various kinds of professions, including professions in what we very broadly call ministry. We use the word ministry in a very broad sense, not necessarily Christian ministry per se, but helping communities in some sort of social role, uh, taking on leader leadership. So there's that side, and there are people who are very expressly planning to go on into other academic programs and even enter doctoral programs and PhDs and so on and so forth. But we don't see and we don't operate as if those two sides were completely divorced from each other. Each informs the other in major ways. It's one of the things that we feel is very important. So people who are coming here to really do work in the community or in the world, and this would be their terminal degree, we believe that you should have a really good education in history and how to read texts and all of the other things that are important in terms of getting a, a, a strong education in religion. And we also believe that people who are doing academic work should have their ears and their eyes open and their horizons open to the social implications, the ethical implications of what they're doing. You know, we don't always accomplish all of those things perfectly, and I do, I am here to tell you, you know, this is a school in progress. Anything that we're talking about, how wonderful this school is, I want you to know it's, it's halfway there, or it's partially there, nothing is perfect. So when you get here, you'll see we're engaged in all kinds of efforts and struggles in order to get our act together better and to get it right. Uh, but nonetheless, this, these are the values that we think are really important. Um, just one more point, uh, in case it's not clear, that uh, as uh, students who are enrolled in the Divinity School itself, in the ma various master's programs, 
you do have the option to take a lot of courses actually outside of the Divinity School. So there are some restrictions on that and the registrar will tell you a little bit about that when she speaks uh, uh, in, in terms of how many. So you can't just like enroll at HDS and then take all your courses in like another school. Um, but, uh, but you can indeed take a lot. And in fact, a lot of the areas of specialization that we have for example, my field is Buddhist studies. We have two faculty in Buddhist studies, myself and Professor Halsey who's right there. Um, but uh, people who do Buddhist studies here do a lot of courses in faculty of arts and science because there's a lot of other people. We, we don't cover everything about Buddhism that one could. So, and that's true for a lot of different fields as well. Okay, so uh, having said all that, I'm gonna start with um, uh, Professor David Holland who is the director of graduate studies in the doctoral program, and he'll speak first, and then we'll go through the two main programs here at the Divinity School. Let me welcome you as well. It's in, I think she's turning it on up there. Good, now? There we go. Welcome to Harvard Divinity School. Uh, I'm pleased to be a part of this panel. Um, my role here is to help you think about what might be next uh, for you. Uh, in terms of uh, pursuing a doctorate in the study of religion. Just by way of history, for much of the institutional history of uh, Harvard Divinity School, there was a doctorate program housed exclusively here, the THD program, that's a doctorate of theology. Um, and uh, this was uh, distinctive from uh, the Doctorate of Philosophy, the PhD, offered through the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. About five years ago, those two programs were merged. And so any doctorate in the study of religion at Harvard will now be the PhD degree, uh, and it's jointly administered by Harvard Divinity School and the Committee on the Study of Religion uh, at, uh, in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. So uh, the faculty of both of those entities are committed to uh, doctoral training and work together effectively to support students in a variety of intellectual pursuits. The, we have 18 subfields uh, within the PhD program. Those subfields represent a variety of forms of engagement with the study of religion, everything from uh, traditions, Janet already mentioned Buddhist studies, uh, Islamic studies, Christian, uh, the history of Christianity. We also uh, organize ourselves by geographical complexes, uh, so uh, East Asian religion, uh, religions of the Americas, that's one of the groups in which I participate, uh, and also by methodologies. So we have um, scholars here who are primarily interested in engaging religion through the historical method, through the ethnographic method, through theology, through philosophy of religion. So if you think about yourself as identifying with a geography or identifying with a tradition or identifying with a method, there is a way to organize faculty around your interests to support your particular engagement with uh, the subject of religion. Um, the process of admission is, as you might imagine, pretty competitive. We usually have something above 150 applicants to uh, the PhD program in the study of religion. 
we typically admit around 14 students, so something less than a 10% admissions rate. Uh, but preparation, such as you'll receive at Harvard Divinity School, is a great way to position yourself for application. It's hardly a guarantee. We accept students from all over the place, not just through Harvard Divinity School. But the kind of education that you get here uh, will be useful for those of you hoping to pursue a doctorate education, in, a doctoral education in the study of religion. Uh, let me just say a word or two about the structure uh, of the program. So in the PhD program, the first two years are committed to coursework. Uh, and that coursework has to include two required uh, doctoral uh, seminars, uh, what we call 2001 and 2002 which help orient you to the study of religion generally, both in its classical manifestations, it's, uh, the, the traditional ways in which it's been studied uh, in, in the post-enlightenment era, and uh, the contemporary conversations in the study of religion to get you up to speed on what's going on currently uh, in the conversations that define the field. There's also a language requirement. Uh, we require two scholarly languages uh, that will enable you to engage a broad array of uh, secondary literatures associated with your field, and then also any research languages, either textual or ethnographic, that may be required for the kind of research that you hope to pursue. Uh, following those first two years of coursework, you will take uh, a set of general exams. Uh, those examinations are administered by a committee that will represent the theories and methods of religion as well as your own area of specialization. And following uh, your passing of those general examinations, you prepare a dissertation prospectus, which is approved by the faculty uh, and the Committee on the Study of Religion. And then you're free to pursue your particular area of research interest uh, in the development of a dissertation. Um, the program uh, is, as I mentioned before, is administered both through Harvard Divinity School and the Committee on the Study of Religion, and faculty from both of those entities uh, are available to you to support your research. Usually breaks down about 50-50, about 50% of the faculty participating in the Committee on the Study of Religion are from HDS and the other 50% are from other areas uh, on campus. We have faculty from uh, English, we have faculty from history, we have faculty from Near Eastern languages and cultures. Um, and so you, it really is a nice way to both harness the energy and the faculty strengths of this school and connect that to the interests in religion that are prevalent across the campus community. You may be aware that uh, our recently departed president, uh, Drew Faust, had a goal of one Harvard by which she hoped to integrate the various um, entities that make up the Harvard campus community into a more cohesive uh, intellectual opportunity for you. And we still have a long ways to go on that, but I will say that the Committee on the Study of Religion is a place where that vision of one Harvard has come together perhaps more closely than other places. Uh, at the university where we really do work together to give students the best set of resources for the su successful pursuit of the, of the uh, interests that you bring. So that's probably enough about the PhD program. I'm just going to add one more point. 
to say that those people who are intending to go into a doctoral program, we, uh, first of all, it is the case, this is not at all a promise, but it is the case that uh, we tend to admit in that class of about 13 or 14 that we admit each year, uh, a high percentage of them are master's students moving up into the doctoral program from this school. We certainly do admit people from other schools as well. Obviously, many more people uh, who are interested in doctoral programs who don't get into the Harvard program, nonetheless, do get into other doctoral programs around the country, and we try to take good care of our students to help them get into one of the major programs in, in their field, just so you know that. It's, it, you do, to some degree, have a leg up. Again, it's not a promise, but it is the case that when you work closely with a faculty, a faculty knows you very well, and they really like you, and they want to support you, then they're going to make a case. Because it's kind of like a, a horse trading tug of war when we actually have this admission thing of, you know, we can admit so few students that we all have to battle it out. And if you know someone really well and you really support them, you're going to be more motivated to, to try to get them in. Just so you know that. Uh, any, would you like to ask a couple of questions to Professor Holland? At all? You don't have to, yeah? So, uh, uh, maybe I'll just project. So, uh, the, the two scholarly languages would be modern languages, and that can be anything that's appropriate to the secondary field in, in your, uh, to, the second, to the secondary literature in your field. Um, so, that there's no particular subset of languages that would qualify as long as you and your advisor agree that these are the languages you need to know to engage the scholarship that is most directly connected to your research. The research languages, again, are defined by field and research. So that, that could literally be any language that would, that would render you capable of engaging the sources that are important for you. So if it's ethnographic research, that would obviously be uh, a modern language so that you can communicate with the people you want to have serve as your interlocutors. Uh, if it's an ancient language, a textual uh, uh, kind of engagement, then that could be something that's not a modern language. So it really is defined by your research, but, but you have to think about it in those two areas. What enables you to engage the scholarly literature and what, engage, what enables you to engage the primary sources? Note too, by the way, that we have language requirements for the master's degree as well. So you will have some Preparation in some of those languages are already actually, and there's, a, there's a various ways that that works out. Um, any other question for David Holland? Yeah. Um, I don't think that the master's here requires that you write a thesis, but is that something that you should do if you're hoping to pursue doctoral study here? It's a great question. The, the Masters of Divinity does require a thesis, um, so there is a, there's a senior culminating paper for, for the MDiv students. The MTS does not require a thesis. There are courses that will give you the opportunity to write extended research papers, and I do think those are of great benefit for people preparing for doctoral training. Um, and we're actually developing 
uh, within certain uh, methodologies, uh, courses that will give you the methodological training to do that. So I teach a course on religion and the his historical method, uh, which is a two-semester sequence, the second semester devoted to the preparation of a, 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 a history paper based on archival research. Uh, I have a scholar, uh, I have a colleague here who does the same in uh, ethnography. So, uh, so we do look for ways to try and give MTS students, I wouldn't say a comparable experience to the MDiv thesis, but a chance to develop the kind of writing sample that could be used in doctoral applications um, and to give you the methodological experience to equip you to jump into PhD work. Okay, let, let, uh, okay quick question, yeah. So the, the funding as it currently stands, and this is always an ongoing conversation, as faculty we're always pushing for more, administration's always uh, resistant to that. Um, so, so this is a, a moving target a little bit. But right now it's five years of guaranteed funding. Um, that includes two years of grant and stipend, so covering tuition and fees and a living stipend. Uh, the second uh, set of two years, so years three and four, uh, would involve uh, serving as a teaching fellow where you'd actually be employed by the university and that too covers tuition and fees and provides you with a, a living stipend. Um, the totals for those years are right now hovering uh, right around $28,500 in living stipend. Uh, and then you have a dissertation completion year, which you can take either that fifth year or you can postpone it for later years. Lots of our students are taking somewhere around seven years to complete their uh, PhDs, um, and that can vary depending on subfield. Um, so lots of our students are finding outside uh, money to fill in those gaps, and I will say that that's relatively forthcoming. It's, it's quite rare for a student to really be left without any kind of funding. So if you think about the university is guaranteeing you five, you kind of have to hustle a little bit for the other two, but students seem to be able to do that pretty effectively. Okay, great. I'm gonna to move to now to, and if you have further questions, I'm sorry, but you could either write to Professor Holland or maybe at, at the end of this morning we'll be able to address some more questions. But I'd like to ask uh, Professor Hallisey now to speak to the MTS pro program. So let me add my welcome to HTS on such a beautiful day. I wouldn't be lying at all if I said that it doesn't get any better than this here. <laughs> but I would be committing a sin of omission because I have to add that every day here is just like today. Oh, sunshine, beautiful leaves, we got the fire department to spray the streets so they're glistening, all for you. A few years ago, I was, went to uh, University of Washington in Seattle, uh, considering whether to work there, and the chair who was trying to persuade me, uh, when I said at one point, it's, it rains here a lot, he said, the rain here doesn't get you wet. <laughs> I thought, oh, what the lengths that people will do to try to persuade you, what they'll say. But then after I turned down the job and said to people who live in Seattle, that you, he had the nerve to say that the rain in Seattle doesn't get you wet. He said, no, that's true. <laughs> then I was, went to University of Wisconsin, uh, again, someone trying to persuade me, six, and then successfully to come there. 
I told the story about the rain in Seattle. He thought, oh, the man doesn't like rain. So he told me, it's si it's, the sun shines more in Madison than anywhere else. And I thought, oh, the lengths that people go to to try to persuade you. <laughs> but when I moved there, it turned out to be true. Oh, there's something about Madison being an isthmus between two lakes that it has less clouds than other places. All of this is just to say, you're going to hear a lot of advertising today. And some of it is true. <laughs> Now, Harvard is in Boston, so we have our own lingo. If you, however you got to Boston, you know that in Boston we have squares that are not squares, Harvard Square and so on. You say, where's the square? Uh, we have spas that are not places where you get like, massages or anything. They're corner stores. And if you go into a restaurant and ask for a milkshake, you're going to get shook milk. If you want a milkshake, what's called a milkshake elsewhere in the United States, you have to ask for a frap in, in Boston. So that means at Harvard we have a Master of Theological Studies, the MTS, which is like a milkshake. There's no theological studies in it uh, except a little bit. Uh, it is like a Master of Arts, what other places call a Master of Arts, but for very complicated reasons that you and I don't have enough lifetimes to, for me to explain it all to. Uh, we call our Master of Arts an MTS. It has 18 areas of focus. And just to keep it interesting, they're not the same as the 18 areas of focus in the PhD program. <laughs> they are organized around religious traditions like Buddhism and Islam, like cultural areas like religions of the Americas or religions of South Asia around themes, religion, ethics, and politics, or religion, literature, and culture, or around methods, religion and the social sciences, or comparative studies. We could say that the MTS at Harvard is like the Republican Party, insofar it is a big tent. It's probably the only comparison that you could say between the MTS and the Republican Party, but it's true. So what the Republican Party says about itself, if you're looking for a variety of nuanced positions on important matters, I don't know what the Republican Party is for you, but the MTS is for you, right? <laughs> so that uh, there are a lot of, a variety of nuanced positions on important matters being discussed in the MTS program. It is a Master of Arts in a professional school. And so the Divinity School is a professional school among the faculties at Harvard. And you could say, in one significant way, when you're thinking about which area of focus is for me, uh, do, do I identify with a religious tradition or a region of the world or a method or a theme? Uh, you say, well, that's kind of hard to choose. You might also say, oh, as a professional school, to think, oh, you're preparing yourself to be a professional in the sense that professionals offer services to other people. They do something that is good for other people. And so one of the things you say, how am I going to figure out what is the good I need to do for other people? You can look at the program goals of the MTS. And so in the program goals, you'll see what collectively the faculty has said that anyone who gets an MTS from here, it will be in the future capable of doing these good things, a variety of good things for people, because they have these abilities, these kind of capacities that come from being in the MTS, graduating from the MTS program. 
So in terms of thinking about the MTS and yourself, don't only look at the areas of focus, look at the program goals to say, oh, this is a kind of formation to prepare me to do good things in the future for other people. Now, as a big tent, there will be, you'll see some people in uh, the MTS program who know exactly what they're going to do for the rest of their life. They're going to get an MTS, and then they're going to get a PhD, and they're going to uh, get the Nobel Prize, and they're going to have their uh, first uh, child at this age. And so everyone, they got to figure it out. <laughs> but I'm a big proponent of a stage of life, which I'm still in, called <laughs> figuring it out. <laughs> and so the MTS program is a very good institutional condition for figuring it out, in which you say, 18 areas of focus, I have no idea. You say, I gotta figure it out. And so before someone says, what are you up to? You say, I need some space where I can just figure some stuff out. And uh, this is one of the things, it's a big rollicking program. There's a lot of people in this room. Uh, this room is filled with all kinds of courses in the MTS. And you say, oh, people are figuring it out in terms of what, what is it that I should be? Now, I keep on referring to universities I visited or worked at. It's a bad impression that I, people don't like me, so I have to move. Uh, so, but I once taught at Loyola University in Chicago, and good etiquette there was that whenever you met a colleague, you had to tell them a joke. The quality of my life there was a lot higher than here. <laughs> now, I've just met you, but I still have that etiquette, so I need to tell you a joke. Let me just say, I don't tell any jokes in classes, only when I meet people. <laughs> so in this etiquette, you know, there were genres of jokes. It was hard to keep on coming up with a joke. You stole jokes from other people, and you would, there would be like runs on different genres of jokes, parrot jokes, all kinds of jokes. Uh, and so one of them was rooms of hell jokes. <laughs> and they have a certain, all jokes have a certain pattern. So let me just give you the pattern, so then I'll tell you the joke for today. So it all sets up. You are at the doors of hell, and Satan says, there's lots of rooms in hell, and you get to choose. And he says, really? I get to choose? And then he says, yeah, show me around. <laughs> and all the rooms are filled with having, people having unspeakable horrors and inventive tortures. And then you get to this one room, and there's one room where people are sitting there, up to their necks in feces. If I knew you better, I'd use a, a more Anglo-Saxon word and feces. And they're up to their necks in feces, and they're sipping tea. And you look and you say, this room is bad, but it's better than those other places with those unspeakable horrors and inventive tortures. So you say to Satan, can I be in here? He says, yeah, but the thing is, once you choose, you can't change your mind. So he says, all right, this room is better than the other, so let me be this. Then he, hears, he says, all right, you can't change your mind. This is it. And he hears his voice boom out, all right, Coffee breaks all over. Back on your, back on your heads. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so in that genre, you get to the gates of hell, and Satan says, let me show you around. And one of the rooms looks like Harvard Divinity School. There's a banner outside that says, welcome to Harvard Divinity School. Sun is shining. Streets are glistening with the fire department spraying the streets. Uh, there's wood panels and incredible ceilings in all the rooms. And then everyone inside the rooms are smiling. 
There's classes on books by authors who you don't, never heard the name and you can't even pronounce the name of the author. There's faculty who are pointing at you and saying, I can't wait to help you. And there is uh, people like me on this panel who are like attendants on an airplane uh, going around with a snack saying, area of focus, take two, take three. <laughs> Have as many as you want. There's students all smiling, pointing at you. We want you on our team. There's deans, down to the end, who are pointing at you saying, you're the change we've been waiting for. You're the way, the truth, and the life. There's librarians who are saying, we're building new buildings for the books you're gonna write. And so you say to Satan, can I be here? And Satan says, yeah. Well, you just can't change your mind. Just remember, and you say, okay, sign me up. And then right away, the unspeakable horrors start and the inventive tortures start. And you say, hey, what happened? And Satan says, oh, that was Prospective Students Day. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Harvard. <laughs> Anyone will dare to ask Professor Hellesi a question? Yeah. Uh, I'm Madeline, and I have to say, we did not get to let the rain in Seattle. I'm from Seattle. <laughs> um, but I was wondering how important it is to connect with one or two specific professors when you're applying to the MCS program. Uh, it's always good to connect with professors. All right? even if they don't seem to be happy to see you darkening their doors. <laughs> but it's always good. And one of the things is just say, oh, for whatever you're preparing yourself to do, it's important to recognize that what I learned in the classes is not enough. There's like a whole life experience going on. And so talking with professors, in which they get, you, get, you get to see them in a, a larger sense than they are in the classroom and they get to see you in a larger sense than in the classroom. I don't think it's worth trying to calculate in a cynical way that I need to have someone who will be able to be the person who is getting me through the door. You say, oh, life is too important for that cynicism. And instead to just say, oh, what I want to do is to be able to learn from people in a fuller sense than may be possible in a classroom. And you just say, oh, for myself, there's no price of admission to that. There's nothing where like, you say, oh, I have to do this in order to go to the office and ask a question because I'm, I'm expecting them to judge me. You say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to learn. I'm here to learn. And so oftentimes, for myself, people ask questions when they come. And I said, I never thought about that. That's really great. Uh, and that's really interesting. But if you try to say, I just want to say the things that they're going to approve of me on so they can write me a letter of recommendation, you say, oh, you're selling yourself short. Can I, can I just ask, did you mean how important is it for the process of applying to begin with or once you get here? Uh, oh, sorry, misunderstood. Yeah. I, can I just answer quickly? The, um, we don't have the same system of advocacy, so the faculty don't weigh in so much on the admissions process. There are some faculty who are on the admissions process, who are in the admissions process, but largely the faculty don't weigh in on that, so that's not so much a thing. Nonetheless, it's always good to connect with professors. Okay, not, not any other further questions? Yeah, over there. Thank you for the story. Um, 
My name is Amir, and I'm wondering, based on your years of experience here in the teaching, what, what do you think makes up for a successful MTS candidate? What characteristics? Thanks. Or someone who is uh, applying to come in, or someone who is a candidate for a degree? Uh, not just a candidate of, of, for a degree, but a student who was actively engaged in the classroom. What makes for a successful um, cohort? Uh, I remember being at a point where you know, I was trying to discern, make a decision about going to graduate school. And I went to talk to a teacher of mine about it and I told him what I was thinking about doing. And what he said to me, oh, it sounds all very good. The only question I have is, what good is it for anyone else? And that question, well, what good is it for anyone else, I think is the most important question that all of us as academics, both applying and every day onwards until death is probably the, the most important question. And so that if you're constantly asking that question of yourself, then, then you just say, oh, you'll be a very successful candidate. One more question, somebody? Yeah. Thank you. Um, Professor Hallisey, what's your answer to that question for your research, if you wouldn't mind sharing? Uh, I would say over the years it's changed. And it, well, different kinds of things that I'm doing, say teaching sometimes may be different. Um, I say one of the great pleasures for me, great joys of coming to teach at Harvard Doing School, being part of the master's programs here, is the opportunities it's given me to try to teach people about how to read scriptures and to kind of teach people how to teach other people how to read scriptures in ways that instead of them being, for me, dis discovering they're not authoritative texts, they're, they're instruments of freedom and how to kind of allow them to be what they were meant to be. My own work as a specialist on things in the history of Buddhism in Sri Lanka and so on, I say, oh, uh, what I take away, I remember, I have an idea that the person I studied with in Sri Lanka who taught me the things that I still am trying to kind of catch up and learn about, that I, looking back, I realized that he had a vision in his mind that when he started to teach me is that what he wanted me to know was good not only for his great-great-grandchildren, but for mine as well. And that he knew he couldn't reach my great-great-grandchildren. Uh, uh, and he needed someone else to do that. And, and basically giving me a gift, he said, figure it out how to hand it on to the future in a ways that it, it's not limited to the past that it had. And I would say, oh, lots of what I'm doing, I would say, oh, I understand it as a gift to the future of a certain range of human possibilities that the future has a right to kind of know about them as well. Great question, thank you. Uh, let's uh, turn to Professor Dudley Rose, who will talk about the MDiv program, and I think also about the THM very quickly. Uh, thank you, Janet, and thank you all for uh, being here. I, I wish I could have Charlie present this. I'm not sure I could possibly uh, match his uh, uh, humor, but I will uh, try in one respect as a, a different answer to the question of what makes you a successful student here. Years ago, uh, when I was a student here, I sat in graduation with a colleague of mine who uh, sat there and mused 
and finally leaned over to me and said, you know, I should have read the books. <laughs> and I would recommend that to you. <laughs> Uh, so the MDiv degree um, is the, uh, in some sense, the first degree of Harvard University. The university itself was uh, founded to prepare people for ministry, as an old document says, uh, fearing to leave an illiterate clergy uh, once those who are uh, serving are lying in the dust. And so that uh, began the foray into the uh, ministerial preparation here. Um, the MDiv degree, which spun out of that, was specifically then for the education and preparation of Protestant uh, clergy, uh, and that was its form for a very long time. Um, uh, here, particularly, although to some degree across the country, here particularly that has broadened enormously. It's broadened um, in the fact that not all of our students by any means prepare for ordained ministry. Uh, they do not uh, prepare perhaps for anything that other people would recognizably call ministry. Uh, we think of ministry here in the words that Charlie just used of what is the way that you are gonna serve? What is the way that your passion is gonna meet the needs uh, of the world? And it is no longer simply Christian. Uh, a number of years ago, the uh, MDiv uh, degree uh, was changed so that it became an interreligious MDiv, which means that we have students from a variety of religious <laughs> traditions, many of which you've already uh, heard mentioned here, sitting in the same classes, preparing for what each of them are calling ministry and talking with one another about what that means, talking with one another about sacred uh, texts of each other's traditions, uh, theological perspectives, and it's not necessarily a conversion exercise or a reductionist exercise. We wouldn't want it to be either one. But we do want people not only to learn about each other, but as Charlie has famously said, to learn from each other. And so that's a big part of what this broad uh, program uh, hopes that students will uh, experience. In terms of our graduates, about 35 to 45% do still go into ordained ministry. So if you're thinking of uh, ordained ministry, that this is a great place to do that. If you think what I just said about the, or think about what I just said about the diversity, that is the world in which you will minister, even if you are ministering in a particular tradition. That is the community that you will be in. That is the community that you will serve and have uh, conversations with colleagues and, and others in. And we think this is a great place to prepare for that. Uh, another uh, 20 uh, to 30 percent go into uh, college or university teaching onto the PhD. So we have a number of the folks uh, in the MDiv program who plan and do in fact go in uh, to doctoral work. And then the remaining uh, uh, percentage go on to serve in uh, ordained and non-ordained uh, roles in other religious institutions than Protestant uh, Christianity. Uh, they go into public policy, nonprofit management, community development, counseling, law, medicine, government, some of which require other degrees. Um, and uh, so it's a very broad um, thrust. 
What I would want you to notice from this is um, the border between the MDiv and the MTS is somewhat uh, unclear, right, in terms of what we've just now both been talking about. And so if you think that the MDiv is only for ordination, you may want to consider in your application, do I belong in the MDiv degree? If you think that uh, <coughs> you are interested in service, that you'd like to do internships or field education, that you want to think of the work that you're doing, your intellectual work, as in some sense fitting under that umbrella of ministry, you might want to consider uh, the MDiv. So at least as you apply, be careful. Um, you can make it, you can apply to change degree programs, but we'd rather have you be in the right one to start with. Uh, and so pay, pay attention to that. Um, I'm mean, not going to, our degree goals, which are in the, the student handbook, which I hope you'll get a chance to look at, are, um, are wonderful. Uh, as Charlie says, they're sales. Um, they, and we, uh, hope we are achieving some of them in terms of the kinds of things that, that you uh, prepare for. They're broad and they're rich. Uh, but let me just say a word about our requirements because uh, here too the MDiv degree at Harvard is going to be a little different from most schools that you may be looking at. Um, for the most part the uh, the requirements are met through uh, distribution requirements rather than particular courses. There are only three required courses in the uh, MDiv program, the Introduction to Ministry Studies, the uh, uh, Studies in the Theories and Methods of Religion, and then a final uh, seminar, which is a writing seminar for the senior paper that David was referring to earlier. The rest of the courses are met through courses in sacred texts, histories, theologies, and practices. Um, those uh, run together uh, sometimes. They are the the uh, boundaries among those fields are not uh, aren't sharp always. Uh, but we do ask that you take at least three courses in uh, sacred texts, but they don't have to be in any particular tradition because we don't require you though you may, we do not require you to prepare in any one religious tradition for ministry. You might be preparing for uh, interfaith or multi-religious chaplaincy, for example. And so, um, though we have some traditional requirements, and many of our students follow a very traditional route to prepare uh, for ordination following the grid that their denominations will expect of them, and that and the curriculum allows for that. Many are doing uh, other things as well. Uh, we do require language study here, and so that's another area that you uh, will want to be prepared to do, three courses in one language. Um, and let me just uh, conclude by saying that uh, like the other programs, the schools in the Boston Theological Institute, the uh, other schools in the Boston area, as well as other faculties in Harvard are open to you, and many of the courses in those will meet degree requirements in the MDiv. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, we're a little bit running out of time, so I'd like for us to hear from our registrar first. And, uh, you know, obviously any questions that you have for any of us, you can either write us emails. Many of us are having special office hours today, such as myself, in the afternoon. 
I forget which time, but it's on your program somewhere, at something like 2.30 to 3.30 or something. Uh, but anyway, uh, Annie Russell is our registrar. Just hear a few words from her, and then we'll let you take a break. Good morning. I'm glad that you're all here. Um, as, as I'm Annie Russell, and as the registrar here at HDS, um, I serve two constituencies. One is the constituency of my fellow panelists, and the other one is you as students. Um, and how do we serve you as students? We serve you um, in, the, in, in many of the traditional ways of, of you know, helping you get registered, um, helping you take advantage of all of the riches, not only here at HDS, but as, as my colleagues have mentioned, um, cross-registering at other Harvard schools and the various schools of, of what we call the BTI, or the Boston Theological Institute. We also serve you as students in guiding you through and answering um, <coughs> what often becomes myriad questions about meeting degree requirements. We are here to support you um, so that at the end of whether it's your two years in the, in the MTS or three years in the MDiv, um, you get to walk across that stage having hopefully met your goals and be ready for the next stage of your life. I will just quickly add that if you have specific questions um, of what our office does or with regard to some of the mechanics of our degree program, um, I'm hosting a lunch table at one o'clock in Rock. I'll be happy to entertain questions about, um, uh, about the mechanics of the degree programs. And also between 4 and 5 p.m., our office, my office is located on the second floor of Divinity Hall. I have open office hours and my door will be open. I'll be there to answer any questions that you may have. Thanks. Okay, so we sort of have like um, half of a minute left. Yes. So, um, uh, one question for any of us? From anybody? Yeah, over there. Um, Professor Rose, can you please talk about um, non-religious students in the MDiv program? Non? Non-religious um, or students in the MDiv program who don't affiliate with a particular faith and their experiences? Oh, non-religious, I'm sorry. I, I thought you said non-resident. I'm sorry, I'm, my hearing is going, I think. Um, so the way the program is structured, we require you to take courses about religions, right? You, you, so that, that is an expectation. Um, it is not an expectation that you are an adherent to any particular religion or any of them. Um, the way in which that has been navigated for the most part has uh, been that students take uh, a number of courses because they come to a divinity school because they're interested in those courses uh, in religion. They also often take courses in, in other parts of the humanities, uh, some of which can fulfill requirements in our program. Uh, and they take courses at other schools like the law school, the business school, depending on what their, 
they're working on. Most people that we uh, find today that are coming here as, as nuns, uh, to, to use that terminology, uh, are nonetheless uh, thinking about community and spirituality pretty seriously. Uh, and so that's an, a way in, in which they will address and appropriate courses even in other traditions to think about those uh, categories. But if I'm not mistaken, it's no longer the case as it was up to recently that MDiv students declare a religious tradition that they're specializing in. Right. So that doesn't exist any anymore. Okay. But it is still regulated that you need to take some courses that are outside of, that, that you, you need to have some breadth requirements um, as, as well. But yeah, there's a disjuncture between what you're studying. There's not necessarily a connection between what you're studying and who you are. Great, thank yeah. you. Okay guys, so it's really great to see you. As I said, we are open to answering your questions in other venues. Have a great day, enjoy yourself. Uh, go outside and look at the beautiful trees and we'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs>